Hey there, it's Riley Blanks-Reed, and you're listening to Self-Regard. This show elevates the depths of compassionate introspection through topics on mental health, creativity, higher consciousness, and identity. In this new series of interviews, I'm drawing back the curtain on our archives. You'll hear unique perspectives from creative female revolutionary minds on artful living, relationships, cultural identity, career growth, and fulfilling a vision despite trauma and hardship. In this show, we prioritize well-being and a mindful state of harmony through a very special way of living I like to call self-regard. All right, welcome to my podcast series featuring archived interviews with three incredible individuals who have shared their wisdom on a range of topics that touch our hearts, minds, and souls. Alex L., Ariel Astoria, and Leah Thomas are all writers, artists, and advocates for personal growth, community care, and social change. They graciously remind us that art, writing, and storytelling have the power to transform us. And they invite us to be curious, compassionate, and creative in our own lives and to use our voices to make a positive impact in the world. I spoke with Alex L. about the importance of morning walks, seasonal shifts, grounding rituals, and self-acknowledgement. She is a warm, thoughtful author, wellness educator, and certified breathwork coach. The intention behind her work is to build community and self-care practices through literature and language. And I have to say, there is a softness and a kindness in her voice that will leave you craving the self-care she encourages. I think you've talked about um, your book After the Rain being more of a memoir and less of poetry. And I feel like you write poetically, um, but I can see how literally there's something autobiographical about it um, because you share so many of your own personal stories. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm kind of in the midst of exploring a lot of trauma-informed therapy methods like EDMR. or CPT. And I've thought about like how I write to process my trauma and how sometimes it can actually be a little triggering because I am more of a narrator, more of an essayist. Like I'm really describing my, my past instead of like telling a story about my past, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm wondering if that's crossed your mind and and how you've processed your trauma through writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine there might have to be some boundaries for you. Like maybe you're not going to share everything. I think there's a fine line between sharing our stories and also being mindful of the other people's stories that we're sharing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I... So my first three books were, well, no, Words from a Wanderer was the very first book. It was Notes to Self and Poems. Love in My Language was Essays and Poems. Neon Soul was strictly a poetry book. And After the Rain is part memoir, part guide. Um, And How We Heal is more of a um, 
yes, intertwined with my own personal stories, but it's really showing people how to write to heal and um, how to use that practice in their daily lives. So it's more a prescriptive book um, linked with my stories. And so as as time has gone on and my career has expanded and my writing has shifted and deepened, what I have found is when I'm writing about things that are triggering, I do not put everything in on the page that will go in a book, right? So I may write the essay first, really diving into the nitty gritty. And then I decide what stays and what goes because not everything needs to be in the world. Not everything should be in the world. Some things are really sacred. And it's like, how do we continue to tell our stories and be authentic while keeping um, a sense of safety and, and, um, boundaries around our stories you know like they are sacred and it's just like how do we protect our peace and protect our stories while also when we're in careers like writing and therapy and wellness and photography like how do we capture what we're trying to say or make in a way that feels safe and aligned and good for us. And so that's really what I have unpacked over the past um, few years, but especially since after the rain. And I really talk about my childhood in there, my relationship with my mom, um, the relationship I have with myself, with my biological father, who I am estranged from. Um, And so it's like, how do we hold those heavy things on the page while also making sure we're creating a safe space for ourselves emotionally. And that just Mm -hmm. comes with, um, with honoring and a lot of self check-ins and realizing that everything isn't for everyone. And, um, and that's okay. And we're allowed to keep certain things to ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a really beautiful way of explaining it. And it sounds like you've created a really healthy framework, but within that framework, you've still allowed yourself to, you know, be fluid. And vulnerable and authentic because that is a part of the art too, right? Like I can share a story and have it make sense and have it be resonant without giving every single detail. And I think that that is really important. And that's what a good artist does, um, I feel. So, yeah. I feel like you do a really good job of honoring, you know, yourself as being a mother and a wife, but also just being a person, <laughs> um, you know, and, and being a writer. And I, I think a lot of that has to do with taking care of yourself and how you identify. How do you put yourself first without feeling guilty or even selfish? Mm. I don't feel guilty or selfish because I do think that self-care is an act of community care. And if I show up empty in my roles, then I am no good for anybody. And so I do not think twice really about honoring myself so that I can not only like live a life that's autonomous outside of my roles to other people and outside of my work. but also so I can lead by example. I'm raising three Black girls 
And I want them to see their mother taking care of herself. I want them to see their mother um, setting boundaries. I want them to see their mother honoring herself and not feeling guilty about it. I think that we give our children sometimes um, a complex because we are carrying the world on our shoulders and dishonoring ourselves while doing it. And so that's a generational thing that I'm breaking. Um, and I am setting my um, lineage up, I feel like, for joy and possibility and healthy boundaries and happy relationships, both with the self and other people. Um, and so I often, you know, just think about that my children are bearing witness to me when I am my best self and when I am my worst. And it's like they see everything and I want them to see um, their mom taking care because I want that to be a practice in their life. Um, and so it's interesting because I say often, hey, we need to honor each other's boundaries. I say that a lot here at home. I have a 14-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old. And my four-year-old said to me the other day, I had asked her to do something and she wasn't quite ready to do it or I forget what happened, but she looked at me and she goes, you need to honor my boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, touche, my friend, touche. Okay, well, when you're done doing what you're doing, please come to the kitchen. <laughs> like, you know, and it's like, it's just wonderful to see what children see. And it's, mm -hmm. and not even just children, like we have to think about, not everyone is going to be a parent, not everyone wants to be a parent, not everyone is a parent, right? And so we also have to think about the other people bearing witness to us. Like when we heal ourselves and care for ourselves, we heal our community and care for our community. When we heal ourselves, we're healing our lineage. When we heal ourselves and take care of ourselves, we are showing other people not only how to take care of us and how we respond best, but also to take care of themselves, right? And so it's really, truly an act of community care all the way around. So I do not feel guilty at all. I feel like undoubtedly, even outside of your household, there are people who need what you have to offer. And I imagine, I mean, I feel like that's just really motivating. Like it must be nice, I think. I mean, I'm sure, you know, being a mother, I know it does, it comes with all kinds of things, but to know that you're being watched, you know, that, that people are around you, little people <laughs> watching you. Um, it kind of holds you accountable, I would think. And it, it makes us realize when we fall short and where we can change and get better and do better. Right. So if we are intentional about how we're moving through the world, everything is a lesson, the good and the challenging. Um, and so Yes, it allows us to not only accept who we are and where we are and, and the changes that we may need to make, but it also invites us to just live in our truth and without holding ourselves like captive. You know what I mean? Because I, I often think that when it comes to parenting and when it comes to being an intentional human being, there is this practice and ritual that needs to happen for us to be able to really show up as our authentic self, right? And so a lot of the time, 
we're not able to do that because we're so caught up in our guilt and in our shame, which I think is truly conditioning from not only how we were raised at some points, I know for me, but also societally, right? Um, especially when you're a caretaker, especially when you may be a public figure, especially if you are a leader in your industry or at your job. Like there's so many things that we feel like we can't say no to, that we can't take care of ourselves. We're too busy. There's no time. And it's just like people are watching. And I think that that's really the invitation. Not only, it's not like we're performing for people, but we are really deeply honoring ourselves. And when we do that, it gives other people permission to do the same in their lives. And so I really resonate with uh, with what you just said. Hmm. What therapeutic practices have helped you most, especially through hardship? I know you've talked about just now, you, you mentioned walking and prayer and meditation. Are there other practices that really pulled you through hardship? Because I feel like once you're there in, in the hardship, like in the thick of it, it can be hard to practice those things that can help you get out of it. You know, it's like you have to, you have to first arrive. And when you're in a space of balance and, you know, when you're healthy, it's easier to like enforce the ritual, you know, but how do you get out of it when you're down? I think for me, it's about acknowledging the feelings that I'm feeling, acknowledging the pain, the hurt, the sadness, and not turning away from those things, acknowledging the fear and looking at it, acknowledging the heartbreak and looking at it, acknowledging the grief and looking at it. Um, And that in itself is a ritual and a practice for me because I am quick to be like, nope, not dealing with that and turn away. But (laughs) that's unhelpful because then I turn back around and it's still there, right? And so um, creating a practice of acknowledging has been extremely helpful for me. Um, I also take medication. I take Zoloft for my anxiety, depression, and OCD, which has helped me enormously. Um, and when I feel extremely overwhelmed, I will go down and rest, take a nap, recalibrate, turn my brain off for a second, let my body do its thing while I'm sleeping. And normally I feel much better when I rise. Um, and then when I'm feeling like really, really anxious, I go to the infrared sauna, which I know that is a deep privilege to be able to go to a place like that. And it's just like, okay, I'll go to the sauna and just sweat it out. And so the key here, I think, is to tune in to what we want and what we need. It may not be sauna for some folks. It may not be meds for some folks. It may not be walks, but find the thing that soothes yourself, that soothes your soul. Self-soothing is not just for babies. It is for adults as well. And so we have to find the things that really nourish us in our moments of depletion and sadness and anxiety and um, depression because those are heavy, real things. And there are times when we can't do anything but take a nap, you know, when we can't do anything but like deep breathe through it. Um, and so we have to find what works for us and what gives us a sense of, um, 
comfort and safety in those turbulent moments. That was Alex L. And next up is a conversation I had with Ariel Astoria back in 2020. She's a spoken word artist whose words have the power to heal and transform lives. Through her poetry, she offers a window into her soul, inviting us to experience and appreciate the beauty of language. She reminds us that gratitude is an action, not just a word, and that failure is an opportunity to pivot and reframe our mindset. Ariel, thank you so much for taking the time to share the space with me. I feel like thank you is never enough. We need a better phrase in the English language to express mm-hmm. gratitude. Um, but you maybe have one. You probably have one. You're good with I don't know. Okay. I, I don't think I've ever I've ever thought about that. I I recently listened to um, this podcast and they were talking about um, the art of bowing and um, the humility and um, just gentleness of that. And I think sometimes, you know, there are no words. I think it's more so just like a bowing to that moment, to that person in that moment as a way of paying respect and gratitude. And um, usually in a lot of cultures, you you bow to those who are older, you know, you bow to those who um, have had experiences, you know, b- beyond yours, and you bow to, to that wisdom. And so I just, I think, if anything, I think of more of an action than I think of a word when I, when I think of gratitude in that sense. Mm, that's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. I wish we had that over here in the Western world. I same. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I got to go think about that. All right. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people like struggle with, with storytelling in Mm -hmm. that they haven't gotten quite close to their own, you know, they can't crystallize it. And so I'm really curious how you've been able to develop your voice and Mm -hmm. how you've used purpose to really um, cultivate it. Yeah. Well, I think my purpose at first was just um, I just want to make beautiful things and I want to make people feel things. That was kind of just like all I knew, you know? And so it's like anything I did came back to that. And now, you know, as I'm sitting a little bit more and like, what are, what are my life's intentions? What are my, um, my intentions with my profession? And, um, I just wrote this down, um, yesterday actually, and I'm going to read it for verbatim because I want to be able to start ingraining this in, in, um, in my language, but, uh, my life's intention is to write words, create art and cultivate spaces that change, heal and transform lives. And when I say heal, I mean the process of returning back to oneself. When I say transform, I mean shedding what does not serve to become. And when I say change, I mean revealing what needs to be uprooted in order to then heal and transform. Um, and yeah, that's kind of where I'm sitting at in terms of purpose of like, I always have felt like words were a part of how I showed up in this world. I think purpose is, um, you see a void and everything in you, um, has a desire to fill it with something. What is that something, you know, and usually that something is not necessarily what we went to school for, not what we were told we would always become, um, but this innate existence and um, ability to fill something that we've been made and designed to fill. 
Is there a quote or a mantra that, that you like that you've turned to in times of, of stress or self-doubt? Yeah, I think um, there's one that I have in, in my poem, Created to Create, and it's literally a quote from Miriam Wilson, which, Williamson, which she says, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are um, light beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness that frightens us most. We ask ourselves, who am I to be talented, brilliant, fabulous, gorgeous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God and you playing small does not serve this world. Um, mm. And yeah, that I mean, created to create was the first poem I wrote to come to terms with. Oh, shoot, this creative thing might not just be like a little hobby on the side. <laughs> like this might be full force what I let, you know, run my life almost. Um, this might be a huge part of not just what I do, but who I am. And so that poem um, and that quote was like, this is, this is your light. You know, this is um, what you've been given to fill that void that, you know, is in this world to whatever capacity. And so um, it's a constant reminder to come back to for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That gave me goosebumps. Yeah. Just hearing you recite it too. the fact that you can pull that from your mind, you don't have mm-hmm. to like <laughs> you know, yeah, yes. it just goes to show how intentional you are about oh, what you consume, you know? Yeah. 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 The memorization aspect from being a spoken word uh, artist, it's like, yeah, I mean, they're the poems that I've written, but then also how I've weaved them in, whether it's song or melody or quotes from other people and to like embody, to actually embody words like that uh, really just creates a whole different appreciation for them. You know, I think in, in the same sense, if we're talking about like humbling and, and bowing to something that being able to memorize and, and to take in words like that is I think another way of paying gratitude to the word itself. What do you do? What do you do when you fail or when something doesn't work? Um, yeah. How do you recover? Well, I think that is a reframing what is failure to begin with? Even when you just said it, I've kind of like reframed that word quite a bit. Not that I'm taking it out of my language, but I'm kind of taking it out of my language. So the moment you said failure, I heard pivot. It's not, it's not a failure. It's a pivot. It's that didn't work. Mm, What else could work? You know, that didn't become what I thought it was going to become. What else could it become? And so for me, I've constantly, especially within the creative world, if we just sat in every failure, we would be buried by it, you know? And so it was like, no, this is a pivot. (sighs) Okay. Take a deep breath, reassess, where else can I go? And so um, the reframing of words, I think is really important in just assessing what is this word anyway? And why do we give it so much power and kind of going from there? If you could speak to yourself 10 years ago, you know, Ariel talking Mm. to Ariel, younger Ariel. What would you say to her? Um, I think first thing that popped into my head was, you have no idea. <laughs> like, that's just, I was 20 um, 10 years ago. So I'll be 30 this year. And so like in college, doing the college thing, uh, get, or no, actually getting ready to, you know, graduate. And so just sitting in that space of like, you have no idea what's in store. You think you're about to just go to college, do all these things, you know, but you have 
no idea in the best possible way. That was Ariel Astoria. And last but certainly not least in this episode, Leah Thomas is a writer and environmental activist who is passionate about making sustainable practices accessible and inclusive. She believes that honoring cultural traditions and celebrating community practices are essential steps toward empowering individuals and communities to take action. She encourages us to rethink our relationship with nature and to embrace a more holistic approach to environmentalism. Without further ado, Leah. I'm more curious how you, how did you learn outside the classroom when it comes to sort of like writing techniques and the different things you listed? I'm curious how you gathered that information and wisdom. Um, so also my sophomore year, unfortunately, back home, that's when Ferguson happened. So I lived in Florissant, Missouri, which is about 10 minutes away from Ferguson. And that's kind of what sparked the Black Lives Matter movement as we know it. And that's also the same time that I started writing professionally and I changed my major to environmental science and policy. So all of these things were happening at the same time. And while I was in California, kind of reflecting on what was going on back home in Ferguson, I feel like I did a deep dive into social justice, the Black Lives Matter movement, environmental justice, and I wasn't finding it in my classrooms. And understandably, like, it was really hard for me to focus. Like, I'm trying to learn. I'm in some random class all the while. Like, structures are burning down. Like, it's not funny, but like... Like, how am I supposed to, how am I supposed to focus? So obviously I was more kind of focused on, okay, social justice. And that was all outside of the classroom. And I didn't know how to um, process my emotions. And what I felt like really helped was writing. Like I love journaling. Um, So then I wanted to see, oh, maybe I could start writing think pieces and try to find ways to communicate how I'm feeling to the world. So I was just writing a lot on my own blog, you know, submitting to random publications when I could that were kind of smaller, not getting paid a lot of the time back then. Um, But I think it was just a really therapeutic thing for me to be able to try to see like, how can I show people what I'm feeling and try to express not just how I'm feeling, but how some people in my community are also feeling right now. And then the more I wrote, And the more people would say, oh, you know, keep it up, keep it up. The more I just realized I really enjoyed it. And I just tried to refine my writing and I'm still refining my writing. But my ultimate goal is to take, you know, those complicated things that were really hard to process, whether it's environmental science or social injustice and package it in a way that's really accessible because all these issues just felt so overwhelming to me when I was learning about them in school or by observing Ferguson. So I wanted to help explain it to other people. So it's kind of a challenge for me. I really enjoy it. Like, how can I take this big complex topic and break it down so more people can understand? Because I just don't think, you know, having to be in college, that shouldn't be a barrier to people being able to have access to, you know, some of this information and it should be available to the masses. I have been really fascinated with um, sort of the concept of protesting without actually going to a protest, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I feel like in a way this is your form, you know, and it's, it's yeah. a really great example for, especially for young people who are kind of trying to figure out where they fit, you know, um, in our community. So I really, I really like that. And that's why I always say like writing is activism for me. And I think that artists right now, artists and creatives are really 
responsible for the revolution that we're seeing right now, like by creating these graphics and just social media was able to raise awareness for the Black Lives Matter movement, um, for the climate crisis. And I think people don't give artists and creatives enough credit. And sometimes people try to discredit other forms of activism that aren't holding the microphone and taking it out to the streets. Because for me, the pen and paper, that is my microphone. That is the way that I practice, you know, activism. And I want to show the younger generation that activism doesn't need to look a certain way and that we can all contribute whatever our strengths might be to what we're passionate about, whether that's writing, dancing, art, you know, protesting, policy, whatever it might be. We need everyone and it takes all of us. So, yeah. It's a strange dichotomy um, to visibly stand out, right? In like a, an all too often whitewashed space um, while also feeling invisible. Like you're, you're like your voice isn't heard or like what you stand for isn't being acknowledged. How do you navigate that? I know you've spoken about it in the workplace, but now that we're talking about social media, I'm also curious how you how you've navigated it there. How have you made your voice heard as advocation for the rest of us, really, um, while also, uh, I don't know, you know, finding a way to kind of integrate yourself Mm. into the space? Yeah, I think something that I've been thinking about lately is that I don't like something that the mainstream media is kind of doing with me, um, positioning me as like the black girl in sustainability. And it seems like they're also picking kind of lighter skin black women. They keep positioning us as like, these are the black girls of sustainability. And it's just, it's not okay because there's a lot of colorism at play there, which I absolutely don't like. And I also want to be able to use my platform to show people that I am not the only and there are so many other people that are interested in this work and doing this work. So that's just something that I'm trying to be really intentional about now that I am getting a big platform, really sharing that space with other people and making sure that not all of these opportunities are coming to me. um, Because it is kind of frustrating that it seems like brands see me as palatable for whatever reason. And I don't know if that's just, oh, she worked at Patagonia or she did this, but that. And I get it. It's cute. But I just hope that my followers, this isn't really answering the question, but they understand, like you said earlier, like we are not a monolith. I am just one very small, 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 small expression of blackness. Like my methods are not the only way to do activism. Just because I have a certain outlook and perspective doesn't mean that other perspectives aren't valid. So I just hope people um, are also interested in finding some of these other incredible Black women that have been in this space and have been doing the work for a long time. Um, so as my platform grows, I think that's something that I'm really becoming aware of um, and the responsibility of like being given this platform to make sure that I'm sharing it with other people as well and making sure to credit all the people that came before me in this process as well. Because, yeah, that is kind of frustrating when people are seeing me as palatable. And I think it's just because I went to... Um, school in primarily white environments. So I know like I code switch, but again, that's a survival mechanism and I'm still black. You know, my parents are both black, still black through and through. Um, But that's just something that I'm trying to navigate right now. And so when it comes to sustainability specifically, um, it's generally not marketed to black communities and those same communities aren't rewarded or even just recognized for how sustainable their lifestyles are just by nature of living. I'm curious how you're working to solve those issues and and how other people can can work alongside you. 
instead of just shaming or walking into the black community and saying, well, this is what you're not doing about sustainability. This is what's going wrong. Like you said earlier, reclaiming what we are already doing and revalidating some cultural traditions that are inherently sustainable in the first place, even if it isn't always recognized in textbooks. So an exercise I really like to do um, when I'm meeting with groups, especially um, groups of BIPOC people of color is saying like, what are some cultural traditions that your family members did um, that might not be considered sustainable in textbooks, but is a sustainable practice? And then people are like, oh, like my cookie tin that my mom uses and repurposes for sewing materials or my butter container that my grandma uses as Tupperware. Oh, we've been thrift shopping since forever, not because it was trendy, but because we had to. So just thinking about those things and the things people are already doing I think that sets people up to feel more empowered. And when people feel empowered, they're more likely to do research and then start thinking about, oh, okay, let's think about our neighborhoods. You know, having a community garden would be really great. Or what are some resources that we can have to help address the environmental injustices and also mental health issues? Like maybe that means we need more green spaces and kind of thinking about that. And then with that empowerment and education comes advocacy. And I think people are more likely to act if that's kind of the pathway of knowledge. Um, but yeah, those are just a couple of thoughts. Thank you so much for tuning in. Your listening ears are the heartbeat of this podcast. If you have a moment, please subscribe, rate, and review. Your feedback is instrumental in the growth and visibility of self-regard. You can meet me on Instagram at Riley Blanks Reed, and you can always drop some thoughts in my inbox at Riley at WokeBeauty.com. I would love to hear from you. As always, remember, you can have a beautiful day, even if it's not that beautiful. Music and audio production by Angelica Ray, graphic design by Daniela Marti, and visuals by Christina Fisher.